Welcome to the podcast of Lancaster Brethren in Christ Church, located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. LBIC is a community being transformed by the love of Jesus, sharing this love with all people. We want this podcast to be an extension of our community and a connection with familiar voices. Together, we want to think about how to follow Jesus in our particular moment. So enjoy the podcast. We're grateful to have you join us as a part of the LBIC family. Um, uh, we are in the season of Lent, and uh, one of the, for those of you who might be new here with us this morning, uh, we pay attention to the church year, or the Christian calendar, because in the seasons of Lent, and the seasons of Advent, and ordinary time, and all these different parts of the church year, they give us different emphases, different things that we can focus on and concentrate on that we might not otherwise want to. And so Advent was a season of expectancy, and I misprinted it in the bulletin. It's no longer Advent. If anybody caught that, that's great gold star for you. But we're in the season of Lent now. And the season of Lent is the season that focuses on uh, repentance. Lent is, it leads to this, this place of suffering and of death for Christ. Uh, when I was in a, kind of a, a, a non-liturgical light church, <laughs> which I would describe us as, uh, you know, growing up, it seemed like we just hit Easter, and, and, and there was no progression to get there. We just got to this place of joy. Uh, but Lent gives us this, this space and this place for us to, to really soak in this uh, space that's a little counter to the, all the songs that we sung this morning in, in terms of the rhythm and, and energy and those kinds of things. But this space of, of suffering and repentance and eventual death, because that's a part of our life too, is it not? And it's a grace, I think, for us to be able to, to pay attention to those things and to understand where the suffering and the death parts of our lives are, are in the context of God's story, because they do find a place there. They're not odd, they're not weird, they find a place within God's story because God joins us in those places of suffering and of death and, and even repentance. God joins us in those places. And so uh, this season of Lent, just like the, the confession that we read, is a season to be honest about who we are. Because as we're honest about who we are, who is not God, we can also be honest about who God is, who we see the person of Jesus to be, and Jesus giving himself for us. And so this season of Lent is this beautiful season where we can kind of soak in the depths of the human condition and how God meets us in the depths of the human condition, but doesn't stay in the depths of the human condition, but raises us up into a newness of life. And so this is the season of Lent, and has these paradoxes, um, because it, it, it doesn't altogether make sense. Jesus says, in order to save your life, which would be kind of Easter-esque, you must lose it. And that's Lent-ish. Uh, and our human nature doesn't really uh, give us space for those kinds of things. But here's the thing, both of these things are true. We must lose our life and our life must be saved. And Jesus is very clear for us that in order for us to save our life or in order for us to find our life, we first lose it. And this is a season, this Lenten season is a season of losing and it's a season where we can pay attention to the losses of our life and be honest about them. It's a grace, I think, for us. So let's turn now to Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 38, where Jesus is very deliberate in talking about uh, losing our lives. This is what Jesus says. 
He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And then that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And then Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke him. But when Jesus uh, turned and looked at his disciples, he, he rebuked Peter. He said, get behind me, Satan. He said, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. And he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Verse 31 32, going back. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. He must be killed and after three days rise again. I love this, this phrase. He spoke plainly about this. He didn't talk, Jesus is, is infamous for talking in metaphors and parables, but here he speaks super plainly. You can't get him wrong. Uh, if you want to follow me, you must take up your cross and follow me. Now, in Jesus' time, there was no understanding that the Messiah would suffer. The Messiah was going to be this, this glory king who's going to come in and save the day, riding in on the white horse or whatnot, and saving the people of Israel from Rome and from the oppressors. There was no sense that the Messiah would have to suffer. Now, we, we do see this in Old Testament readings, but when, you read the, uh, when, when the people of Israel read the Old Testament forward to, to the person of Jesus, there's no sense that there's going to be suffering. It's only because of how Jesus fulfills the role of the Messiah that you read backwards into the prophet like Isaiah, and you read the suffering servant songs, and you see that suffering was always going to be a part of the Messiah's life. But up until that point, there was no conception of this. Uh, it, was, it, it was going to be just one who comes in as, as a savior. And so Jesus introduces this idea of suffering and the Messiah. Because the passage right before this one, that, um, the one that we read, was where Peter confesses, Jesus says to his disciples, who do people say I am? And Peter confesses at the very end, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And so Mark has this really quick turn of events, turn of scenery, and, and Peter, who's just confessed that Jesus is the Messiah, is saying, no, you're not going to suffer, because suffering, in, in his understanding of who the Messiah was, was not on the table. And what Peter was understanding in that moment is Jesus was talking plainly, that if Jesus, who he just declared as the Messiah, who is Peter's rabbi, is going to suffer, it also means that Peter, as Jesus' disciple, and every disciple that follows after, is also going to suffer. It, it's, not a, um, it's not a message that's like, hey, follow Jesus, because you get to suffer. Like, how many people want to sign up for that? But in the same way, that is what Jesus is calling to. And, and part of the question is, what is Jesus talking about here in terms of denying oneself and, and taking up our cross and following him? Uh, I shared with our interpretive community last week that I didn't really like this passage. Uh, I don't know about you. Uh, but here's why. Um, 
I hear this call to deny myself and take up my cross, um, but I told them, I shared with them, the truth is I'm comfortable denying what I'm comfortable denying, which means I'm really only denying what I'm comfortable with. And so it doesn't really feel like there's much denial going on if it's like, okay, God, you can have this, or Jesus, you can have this, whatever it may be. Uh, I'm, I'm faced with the fact that what I want to deny is just what I'm comfortable denying, and I think Jesus is maybe calling me to something a little more than that. But this morning, what I hope to do as, as we go on with this text today is get a full understanding of what exactly it is we're denying. Because I think when we read something like this, when we read take up a cross and follow, or we read denying, we think, uh, we think of specific things. We think of like, okay, I want to deny this, or God's calling me to deny this. And it becomes this checklist of things that you think God's calling you to die, and when you deny them, uh, then, then God will be happy with you. And, and is that what God is calling us to, is, is to examine our lives and to look at all those things that we might deny? Or do we understand denial in maybe a, a different way? And I I hope, I'm sure you can probably understand it in that way as kind of a checklist thing, but I think there's something else going on here. And that's what I want to explore this morning, is what exactly they're being called to deny. If you look throughout the passage, there's uh, some connections we could make to what they're being called to deny. In verse 33, Jesus accuses Peter of only having human concerns in mind. In verse 36, Jesus talks about gaining the whole world. In verse 38, uh, Jesus describes that generation as adulterous and sinful. And so there's a thread, I think, that weaves throughout all these different kinds of descriptions to describe the way of the world as it is. And so human concerns, gaining the whole world, adulterous and sinful, is descriptive of the world that we're denying. Adulterous and sinful um, is a very acute way of describing that generation, and I would suggest it's not only that generation that uh, it's describing, but it's probably every generation, ours included. Adulterous and sinful. Uh, adulterous generation, it, it's, it's not speaking of spouses who cheat on one another, or leave one another, or those kinds of things. It's not talking about that at all. But what it, the word is getting at is all the ways the world has cheated God through their forms of idolatry. So adulterous is more in association with this thought about idolatry or the things that we worship. An adulterous generation is one who gives ultimate meaning or ultimate meanings to that which is not ultimate. And this is what we do all the time. We give ultimate significance in our lives to things that are not ultimate. The only ultimate thing or one or being is God alone, right? But what we do in idolatry is we give ultimate meaning to those things that are not ultimate. And many times it's the authority figures within societies and cultures that determine what is ultimate. Right? And so for Jesus, he names the, the scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of the, of the law. But within cultures, thought leaders, uh, or you know, the elite, whatever, whomever you want to call, people in positions of power, they determine what is ultimate, what's important. And those things are the things that are going to be pushed. I wonder if we're comfortable using that language to describe our generation as adulterous and sinful. I realize it feels like a Bible-thumping words, right? Adult, adulterous and sinful generation. You're not 
unless maybe you're a street corner person, which I'm really not, you know, shouting those things in Lancaster City. Um, you're not going to use that language. Um, and I think there was a time, too, where even from the pulpit, I would, I would want to downplay that language a little bit because I didn't want to, like, step on anybody's toes or make Jesus um, unpalatable. But there is a sense where Jesus is unpalatable. And that's okay. We're not beating each other up with that. It's simply descriptive of the world that we live in. Like, we can't call the world around us good when it's not, because that's negating the quality of goodness, right? It's betraying what goodness is when we call that which isn't good, good. And so it's very important for us to look at our world and describe it accurately. We're adulterous and sinful. We name things that are ultimate that are not ultimate. Those are the things that take the place of God in our life. And I think one of the things that Jesus is doing here in, in, in what he's doing with Peter is he's practicing that form of denial that he's calling us to. Peter's like, no, this isn't going to happen because this isn't the way things are supposed to shake out for the Messiah. Suffering is not part of the equation. And this is, again, one of the temptations that Jesus faced we talked about last week. You know, uh, in, in the desert, Jesus is tempted by Satan to not have to go down this road of suffering. And, I, I, and perhaps it's not even specific to our culture and the Western culture or whatnot, we, we try to avoid suffering like the plague, don't we? we? We try to pretend like it's not a reality. We try to avoid it at all costs. But suffering is a part of, of, of human existence. And Jesus, as he turns from Peter, he says, look, the way that I'm going to go must entail suffering. Must entail suffering. It entails this cross. I can't get away from it. If I would say yes to you, I would be betraying the, the mission that God has for me. I would simply be going along with what you think should be the way of the world. A, 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 a kingdom that just goes along with the way things are. And Jesus is saying no to that. I can't do that. I am going to, the way that I am going to proceed is going to entail suffering because what I'm going to do is against the ways of this adulterous, wicked, sinful generation. I am going to call ultimate what's ultimate, and that is God alone, while this adulterous and sinful generation just doesn't. And so for the Pharisees, uh, you know, their, their ultimate is the law and the temple and those things that were supposed to point to God were actually exalted to the place of God. For the Romans, it was this sense of, of Roman culture and Roman gods and, and Roman violence that achieved some sort of peace. And it was intimidation and it was slavery and it was sexual exploitation. It was all of these things. And Jesus suffers because he says no to each of those things. He says no to the ultimates of the religious systems and he says no to the ways of Rome. And so Jesus is going to suffer precisely because he's at odds with the world. That's Sometimes that's where suffering comes from. And I think particularly in this passage as Jesus is calling us to a cross and to denying, we suffer and we, when, when, we suffer, when we deny we suffer because we're saying no to the ways of and participating in the ways of this wicked and adulterous generation, the way that things are in our world. So we might frame denial if we ask ourselves again, what does it mean to deny? We might frame it this way. 
We deny anything or any way the world deems ultimate because we understand the nature of the world to be adulterous and sinful. And so we are perceptive and we are discerning as followers of Jesus, not wanting to be co-opted into saying yes to the things of this world, but we want to be faithful in saying yes to the things of God, which ultimately uh, will put us at odds with the ways of this world. And that is a tension. And the ways of this world, when we say no to it, they don't react very peacefully to it, Right? The world doesn't act very peaceably to the things of God because it's challenging their values. It's challenging their cultural norms. So it's precisely from these ways, the ways of the world, that Jesus is rescuing us. And when we participate in denying ourselves, we are participating in Jesus' rescue of us. So it's not just these things, these little things that we have to deny. But when we're denying, we're denying the ways of this world. We're saying no to the things of this world. And we're saying yes to the things of God. That's what we're denying. That is the practice of denial. Look at verses 34 and 30, uh, through 37 again. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but for whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? So let's pull some phrases out of these verses that seem to be saying something similar. Deny yourself, take up your cross. Save their life will lose it. Loses their life for the gospel will save it. Gain the world, yet forfeit your soul. And so this cross, this take up your cross and follow me is an interesting thing because the cross is a form of Roman oppression. And so the idea behind the cross was to intimidate other people. And so people would be hung on the cross as a form of shaming them into following the ways of Rome. And so the people who would be crucified would be the people who would be at odds with the ways of Rome, which makes it much, makes much more sense than why Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross because he was at such odds with both the ways of Rome and the ways of the Jewish elite and temple and people at that time. And so there's an irony about the cross. Rome used it as a, a tool of shame and a tool to instill fear, but Jesus uses it as a way to make an unashamed statement about loyalty to God. And judgment, it's a tool of judgment on the way that things are. It's like Aslan on the stone table in C.S. Lewis, right? They think they're taking care of him, but they had no idea what was happening. They didn't know the powers of the deep magic, so to speak, from, from Lewis. Pastor Tim Keller writes this, when death loses its sting, when death no longer has power over you because of what Jesus did on the cross, then you will be living a life of love and not a life of fear. I want to talk about love and fear for a few minutes because I think fear is one of the things that we are being called to deny. For an adulterous and sinful generation of which ours is too, death is the ultimate thing. It's, it's the ultimate thing. And there's a particular idol that springs up when death becomes the ultimate. 
You know what that is? It's the self. Ourselves become the ultimate idol when death is the thing that is most feared. Because we will all die, we are forced then, under this presupposition of fear and death, we're forced to preserve ourselves. When we're forced to preserve ourselves, any external threat, which mostly comes in the form of human beings, is, is viewed as our enemy or as, uh, as a threat. And when we see people or we see others as a threat to us, how do we respond to them? We respond to them in fear. This is our culture. This is kind of a diagnosis of our culture at large. We are afraid of death. We want to get what we want now. We want to preserve ourselves. Anybody that is against uh, the preservation of ourself is our enemy, and we are afraid of them. The language of fear in our world is all over the place. It is saturating us, this language of fear. I would suggest that fear friends, is the worship of death. Fear is the worship of death. Now, fear in the Bible, when it talks about fearing God, is very different because that language is one of all, right? It's one where things are put in perspective, where things get bigger. That's fear in the scriptures. When we're told to fear God, it's because life and, and, and existence gets bigger because of us conceiving of who God is. This kind of fear makes life very small. This kind of fear of God is creational. This is like a black hole that just sucks into us. This kind of fear is the worship of death. And so again, how might we understand denial? What might it mean tangibly for us to deny ourselves and take up our cross? One of the most tangible ways, I think, and especially in our world, especially with all the messaging that's out there and the language that we use and the tone that we use, one of the ways that we deny ourselves is denying fear in all its forms. I refuse to be afraid. Because when I'm afraid, I other you. I other them. When I'm afraid, I look to preserve myself, not give myself. But what is, the, what, what is everything doing right now? It is inducing fear. What if? What if? What if? But it's not only about what we deny. It's not just that we deny fear. It's what we do instead. It's not just what we say no to. It's what we say yes to. It's what we do in response. And I would suggest that our response to fear... The thing that we do after we deny that we're going to swim in this culture in the waters of fear is love. Now, this isn't like mamby-pamby love. This is like grit-teeth love. This is agape, giving of yourself 100% love. This is a love based upon trust. The kind of trust we talked about last week as being sons and daughters of God, finding our identity in Jesus. The love that Jesus shows on the cross is ultimate. Jesus gives himself fully for humankind. 
at the hands of humankind. The very ones Jesus goes to the cross to save are the, uh, to save are the ones putting him to death. Keller calls this true love. But that, get this, I'm going to quote him again, and this is so poignant. He says, our real problem is that nobody is actually fully capable of giving true love. We want it desperately, but we cannot give it. Listen to this. That means there's a certain mercenary quality to all our relationships. Isn't that true? I mean, even in the most intimate of relationships, right? Marriage is one of the most intimate of relationships, right? If I'm living in a posture of fear towards my wife, I'm not going to be able to love her fully because I'm always going to be wanting to get something that I'm afraid I'm not going to get if she doesn't give it to me. And this is what fear is, is is giving ultimate to that which cannot hold the ultimate. Your wife can't hold that. Your job can't hold that. Your identity can't hold that. Your kids can't hold that. Those are not ultimate things, but those are the things that we derive our identities from. And when they fail, we're afraid. We're afraid of our identity. We're afraid of our meaning. And then we put more pressure on them than they can hold. And then they live in fear. And it's just this reciprocity that goes and goes and goes. So there's this mercenary quality that we have to face as we look and and, and think about how we love one another. We, we might think, you know, the fear language is what if language. What if I love and I get hurt, right? What if I love someone, they don't love me in return? Or what if I get, what if I love and I get taken advantage of? What if I love and somebody uh, takes it as a condoning of something that they're doing wrong? What if I love them, but it take, we, I, they think I'm supporting what they're doing? Or... Here's the story of, uh, that came out in our interpretive community this week. Um, somebody was talking to someone about helping Ukrainian refugees. And the person said in response, well, what if when Russia takes over the United States, they see my name helping a Ukrainian refugee? What are they going to do to me? <laughs> now, it's funny, but it's not. Because that's normative. And I actually know people that would think that. I have family members that would think that way. But that's, you see how fearful that is. Fear, by and large, is destructive. It's this black hole that sucks everything into itself. Love, however, friends, love is generative, love is creational. Like when I, when I love, I am giving to someone who's going to receive and it's going to nurture something within them. Whether they pass it on is immaterial or not, uh, it'd be great if they do, but when I love someone, I am nurturing something inside of them that is good. Love is giving of oneself to another. There is nothing more uh, Christ-like than when we love sacrificially, not getting anything in return. Actually, there's probably nothing more Christ-like than saying no to the fear game and saying yes to loving someone in return. Fear. 
Fear makes our life and our soul so small. Like when I think of our souls, and and, um, St. Teresa of Avila talks about the soul this way, as this ever-expanding kind of pool. And so as you grow in the love of God, there's, there's more water that's there to fill the pool, so to speak, and the soul can do nothing but grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. Fear is the opposite of that. Fear makes our soul so small. Fear makes our soul so small. And it makes our world so small. But love creates. Love creates. Ken, I want to invite you. You can go ahead and get the kids for communion. They'll be coming up and joining us in a few minutes. And so when Jesus is talking about denying ourselves, taking up our cross, it's, it's not just this tic-tac list of, okay, what is it that I've got to deny this week? Because Jesus often talks in kingdom language, right? And it, it's almost easier to be like, well, I think I'm going to deny this this week. This is my checklist of denial. But then I go out into the world, and I'm just absorbing fear left and right. I'm just going to absorb the messages of fear, and then I'm going to respond in that message of fear. And it's anti-kingdom. It is anti-kingdom of God. It is running against the grain of the kingdom of God. And so maybe instead of a little tic-tac list, it's no. I'm I'm looking at this in in larger terms and then letting it filter down. Like the kingdom of God is a kingdom of love, self, self-sacrificial love. That is what I want to say yes to. What I want to say no to is participating in this cult of death and fear. And so being attentive. How, how, how am I being uh, co-opted into being afraid right now? What does it look like instead of being afraid? What does it look like to love? I'll close this morning with some words from C.S. Lewis and Mere Christianity. He says, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, the death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. This is the line I love. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself. And you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him. And with him, everything else is thrown in. Amen.